Well, I've known Brian Pottinger for many years. He started off as a political journalist, then a political correspondent, then the editor of the Sunday Times when it was in its heyday, publisher of the Sunday Times thereafter. And since retiring, he's been the author of numerous books, the latest of which was done last year. I think, Brian, unless you've actually come out with another one since then, States of Panic, COVID-19 and the New Medieval. You've done very well. Thank you. What I loved about that book was that it came out early in the pandemic, so um, early in 2020. It also tracked the way that viruses evolve. You looked at the Black Death, Spanish flu, SARS, MERS, swine flu, etc. Is COVID-19 following that pattern? It's, it's following that pattern exactly. Um, the, the outbreak, SARS-CoV-2, which was the coronavirus outbreak, um, was a severe outbreak. I don't think one should dispute that fact. It, it matches some of the great decadal coronavirus outbreaks we've had, in, for example, the Asian flu of 57 and the Hong Kong flu of 68. So it was a serious outbreak, but it followed exactly the same pattern. And people who should have known, uh, should have known it would do that. Uh, it would go through a process of, of mutation. It would change both the target of its, of its target, but it would change its nature. It would have peaks, it would have troughs, and then it would eventually slowly expire. And, and that's normally a two-year process. That's what happened to swine flu. It's happened pretty much throughout the one that we all remember the most, the Spanish flu, took a bit longer, but that was because it took place in a very unique set of circumstances. End of the First World War, 23 million dead, millions of wounded and starving people on the move. But yeah, there's nothing that's happened with SARS-CoV-2 that surprises me in the slightest. I had a really interesting interview with Richard Friedland from Netcare, in which he was very outspoken about the fact that the hospital beds were not full, in fact, that many of the wards were empty, that very few of the patients were on oxygen. And he came to a conclusion that any rational person would have done if you'd gone through that experience or seen what was going on, that Omicron, oh, oh, Micron, as some people are calling it, is yet another step in this evolution of the COVID virus to becoming something that we all live with. It made a lot of sense to me, Brian, but you've studied these things much more. Is is that consistent with the way that these viruses will actually mutate? Yeah, um, I, I think so. And again, I can only say that at uh, SARS-CoV-2 and its manifestation in what we call COVID-19 um, followed a very predictable course. In fact, early in this uh, outbreak, there was work done by some Israeli scientists who predicted to the day virtually how this thing was going to play out. So, as again, I say that there are no great surprises here. I think we are very, very much into the expiry phase. What we're seeing now with these variants that are coming out, these are, are, are variants which have elements of SARS-CoV-2. But the fact that we're using um, RT-PCR testing kits, which are designed to, to track down elements of COVID-19 unto the umpteenth generation, is why we are keep uh, turning up um, elements of, of COVID-19. Had we been using other tests, I think we might have had different statistical outcomes. And different statistical outcomes would then, of course, dictate different policy outcomes, possibly. But we didn't have that, uh, the benefit of that. Um, but to answer your question directly, yeah, I think we're in the, in the, in the closing stages of this now. There was a lot of pressure on Cyril Ramaphosa here in South Africa to 
implement another lockdown when uh, Omicron started taking off. And similarly in the UK with Boris Johnson, who both of them resisted that temptation. Must, it couldn't have been that easy given the pressure from the public. Well, uh, in South Africa, of course, it's the, the pressure in, in uh, statistical terms is less because 60% of the population have just blankly refused to get vaccinated. So there was no real pressure from a public point of view on President Ramaphosa, if we're talking in numbers. But there was, of course, hugely vocal, very voluble interest groups and acolyte groups who were pushing for all sorts of lockdowns and, worst of all, uh, vaccine uh, mandates, uh, vaccine passports, and so on. And I think you and I exchanged some views on, uh, about that, is that why, when you're having a dying uh, virus, would you want to reimpose a pass system in South Africa? Because that's exactly how it would have been seen. A piece of paper let you go here, but not there. And you know the resonance of that among the majority of our, our fellow South Africans. It's, it's, it's very strong. So I'm, I'm delighted. Um, I'm delighted that uh, the latest uh, decision was to remain at lockdown level one. I don't know what's happening to this task group that's looking at passport vaccine, vaccine passports and so on. I trust that they will also be very mindful of the political and social implications. Brian, are people just out of touch? And I, I'd say this with great respect, but the way that you've unpacked it from researching history of viruses, the way that Richard Friedland explained it very uh, obviously from what's happening in the hospitals, and yet we see uh, Israel giving, I think is it their, now their fifth booster to try and fight against Omicron. You hear uh, people in the UK, much of the UK media still today is saying that this could be, you, you can't believe what's happening in South Africa is something for the rest of the world. Uh, well, how do you, how do you un- understand all of this? And maybe put your editor's hat on where you do look at all sides of the story. Why would we be getting such a, such a confusing message from those who govern us? You know, Alec, I think it's a, it's a long story and, and, and I don't think that one has to go and look at conspiracies. Uh, I don't believe in conspiracies. I, you know, I think conspiracies are very difficult things to put together, and this is just too vast to be a conspiracy. What I think did happen is that you had a lot of vested interests who each took a bite out of this. They each took a bite at the cherry. Uh, we began with a process which was a coronavirus outbreak. There were certain parties who had a great interest in escalating the intensity and the level and the concern about that. They were right to be concerned about it. The pathogenic intensity was high and we knew it was for a specific target group. It was very dangerous and that was the elderly, those mainly over 79 with comorbidities. Sense would have dictated focus on the elderly, do things to control that, to isolate them, do a massive educational program. Irrationality would then dictate you close the whole world down for the first time in 700 years outside World War, that you would impose these massive constraints on the movement of people, that you would produce a number of, um, of untested ways of trying to control this, which has had epochal changes in the life of the developed world. Caution would have been dictated. It wasn't. So why would this happen? I trace in the book why I think it happens, and it's my view, but at least it's based, unlike much of the hysterical ranting that one hears about it, it's based on a great deal of research. This occurred at a time where there were vested interests in pushing panic. The World Health Organization sits at the center of this whole drama. 
This was an organization that was facing massive reductions in its, in its contributions because of the way it behaved. It had a huge internal investigation into corruption involving travel allowances. It was in a bad place. The World Health Organization stood at the center of driving the fear. They had already changed way back in swine flu epidemic. They had already changed the definition of pandemic to mean that a pandemic was something that simply trans went across a border. There was no definition in terms of its severity or its scope, just across the border. Uh, that was enough for a pandemic. We know from the records that the original advisors to the World Health Organization said, hold off, guys, we, we haven't got enough data to make a decision. The World Health Organization relentlessly drove this to a level six. And why did they do that? My personal view is this was a, guys, we're really on the ball here. We're showing you how it works. We are important. And then, of course, you had a whole lot of subsidiary organizations operating not as a conspiracy, but intimately involved with each other. They feed off each other. They babysit each other's children, if you want. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry, they research grants to research institutions who provide directors to pharmaceutical companies, who provide people who serve on the big public health organizations. It's the revolving door thing, and it happens all over the place in all different sectors. In this place, it came together in a confluence of events, which was rather like the trains of, of 1914. Once they began, they couldn't be stopped. And that's what happened. You had the CDC in America that got trapped, and this was a great misfortune for the world. They got trapped into a culture war during the, the Trump presidential campaign. And a lot of what happened there was to be seen in terms of a political response, not an epidemiological uh, or biomedical response. And once this, tra this train was rolling, then Alec, everybody piled in. Like Y2K, everybody piled in. So you found the public health authorities were saying, oh, we can treble our budgets just as long as we keep everybody convinced this is terrible. Then you find uh, organizations like the pharmaceutical companies, of course they're going to come in. We know that Pfizer's already been publicly declared to have said a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They will climb in, and that's purely predictable. You then start getting the media, and this is probably the greatest disillusionment I've had, the way the media have in so many ways, mainstream media, just repudiated their responsibility to ask the basic questions and have just adopted this narrative. And primarily, of course, you've got the big tech organizations like Amazon and so on, the guys who are providing online services this whole process has taken one great leap forward in their project of turning us all into uh, pliant consumers of their services for education, for shopping, for, it, for uh, entertainment, for everything. Uh, and of course they leapt at this opportunity, but as they also control many of the major channels of information, such as Amazon, there's a problem there because you get a constriction of information flow. So it all came together in, in a really perfect storm. And I think in a much deeper level, it is the result of us being trained, being, being in fact instilled in us um, a basic sense of fear, a basic sense of anxiety, because there are many organizations who have evolved because of the structural changes of our, of our economies to be there to scare us, that is the job they do. The NGOs, the, many of the charities, the outreach organizations, they live off the business of creating crises. That's how they employ themselves. And these organizations now are truly vast. Some of the last research I saw is that um, 
the total volume of revenue that goes through these 11 million organizations worldwide is equivalent to the entire United States retail sector. So we're not talking about, you know, little gray-haired old ladies down the SBCA. We're talking about structured, organized, uh, uh, empowered corporations, multinational corporations, who sell fear in some form or another, whether it's we're all going to to uh, frizzle to death or we're all going to die in a pandemic or if we don't do this, this is going to happen to us or whatever. It's a whole set of sub-franchises of the scare industries. No conspiracy. No conspiracy. This is just a rational economic response to a changed economic environment and people doing what they do. And vested interests, uh, if it's going to be in your interest, it is, as you mentioned, Pfizer. I, I can't understand why uh, so few of perhaps uh, well-intentioned idiots are understand or, or appreciate why Pfizer is doing what it's doing. It, clearly, the, uh, the, the pricing of the Pfizer vaccine is profiteering in, in, in a general sense. When you compare it with AstraZeneca, for instance, it's a, it's a multiple of, of the cost of AstraZeneca and so on and so forth. But I guess un unless you understand uh, economics and you understand how business works, this might go completely over your head. But you had an interesting uh, interview yesterday with Unheard, uh, with Freddie Sayers of Unheard, uh, which is a, a UK operation, in which you referred to warrior scientists. I'd love to explore that with you. What do you mean by that? Um, I, yeah, I, I know I did, and, and there's been some response to that. Um, I, I actually believe that there is a sector, not all, but there is a sector of the biomedical sciences who now come cloaked in the white coats of infallible knowledge and have become a class of uncontrolled, uncontained political players in their own right. They dispose governments, they move governments, they change humans' lives. And they make a lot of mistakes, as you would understand. They make mistakes. Those mistakes are never corrected, never apologized, there's never apology for them. They have an impact in our lives. So I ask this question, you're a journalist, I'm an ex-journalist. We are accountable to a whole set of of professional uh, ethics and we're accountable to our readers and our listeners. We know that there are people who are elected to a, a public affair. They're accountable to the electorates. Who is, who are the scientists? Uh, and particularly I'm talking about epidemiological scientists who I, I call the dark and speculative sciences. We've seen that in this thing. We've seen in terms of their projections how fantastically wrong they've been. Yet public policy has been based on that. Jobs have been destroyed. Human lives have been destroyed because of the withdrawal of medical services. Whole economies have been turned on their heads. Our futures are changed. Yet nowhere is somebody held accountable. If I was an MD and I went to my board and I said, guys, um, our, our, our profits are going to be 20,000% more next year, in effect, we're running at a loss, I'd be, I'd be CEO for about 10 minutes more. There's an accountability here. There's no accountability in this new class. I call them the techno tyrants. And, and they are, that's a question we have to address. Now. And, I, I, and I said to Freddie in, in the interview with Unheard, I think that is going to be one of the defining battles that go forward. You can call it a culture war if you want. You can try and define where people fall in that. 
uh, whether you put them as conservative or progressive. But the fundamental question is who will control these new and powerful elites? That's going to be a big political question going forward. Will play out in elections. Coming back home, because uh, you mentioned elections, uh, and you were a political editor and a political correspondent for, for many years, how are you reading the local or the results of the local election together with the way that the ANC in South Africa handled or mishandled, I guess, the pandemic? I think the two were kind of linked um, in the sense that uh, we knew that there was major problems with the state uh, and with the failing state long before SARS-CoV-2 came along. We, we knew the crises that were uh, emerging and have been emerging during the time of the ANC rule. All that I think COVID-19 did is it just simply massively exacerbated that. And it did so in a way which again illustrated levels of incompetence and corruption in government. To a very weary public, we now had an added burden. And that was a management of the pandemic, and I won't go into the details, which was just very badly managed. Overreaction, me too stuff, because you know that's what everybody else was doing. Uh, badly timed uh, and totally inappropriate for our, our African context. And then corrupt. You put all that together, everybody says, that's it, we've had it now. Now, that type of stuff feeds into the political instability within the ruling party, because the ruling party is essentially split, and you're getting factional wars there in which we, as ordinary people, are being dragged in. And, of course, when you have COVID-19, you get a, a much deeper sense of dissatisfaction. I've always made the point, the guys who sit up there, the scientists uh, and the epidemiologists who advise Ramaphosa, do they ever go down and talk to poor and marginalized people about their experiences of the lockdown, their perception of things like compulsory vaccination and vaccine passports? Because if they did, they would be shocked to understand the depths of fury and enragement that lies there. And that, I think, manifested itself in the local government elections. And it's quite interesting the way it manifested itself, a massive reduction in support for the ANC, Remember, these guys were getting 72% of the popular vote, just scraping 46% now. That's big. Um, and a, a growth of the of the extremist parties, if you want to call it that, or shall I say the parties on the outer fringes, the EFF on the one hand, Freedom Front on the other. EFF went up 20%, Freedom Front trebled their votes. And then a huge growth in the communities. You'd expect that in local governments, personalities, neighborhood groups, and so on but all of it a leeching away of power and influence from the ANC. And I think that's a great thing. I think that's some of the best news I've ever seen. And the second bit of really good news was when the ANC was attempting to cobble together coalitions to rule the big municipalities, not a single one of the major parties agreed to come in. That's how toxic the ANC is. That was all good. That's, that's good news. And that, to me, gave me more encouragement than I've had for some time. I mean long time ago, I gave up that Cyril Ramaphosa, who I respect as an honourable man. long time ago, I gave up any hope that he would actually you know, fundamentally change the system. It now has to be changed by, guess what, the cliche, by the people. Brian, is it sustainable, though, this swing away from the ANC, or would it be a reaction, a knee-jerk reaction, a panic reaction uh, to the way that the pandemic was handled? No, I think it's more fundamental than that. 
I think it goes to the heart of the question of lack of services, failure of services, uh, intrinsic corruption in every interstice of the state, um, arrogance, indifference, and and, and also a, a frustration with the inter-Nissan warfare within the ruling party. And, and those are long-term things. I don't think they're going to get better in the next two years. I think they're probably going to get worse. The ANC is going to keep governing as it always governs badly. And so I think that these forces will be more present in two years' time than they are now, unless unless there's a radical change and President Ramaphosa does what we'd all hoped he, had, he would have done in the beginning, split the ANC, put the bad guys in prison, get rid of its reactionary elements, take its, its, uh, its enlightened and modernist forces and find allies in the other political parties, create a modernist, centrist force which can direct, direct, uh, drive us forward. To start modernizing again, to remodernize, because we've been in a process of demodernization virtually since Tabo and Becky's rule. You, in the interview with Unheard, said that some people are regarding you as a bit cookie. Uh, I found that strange, given your background and, and the respect with which people in our community hold you and always have, and the very measured approach that you've used in, in all of your comments, that uh, the interviews we've had and, and what you've been writing elsewhere. Who's considering you to be a bit of a crazy person now? Not too many people. Most people are very polite. And thank you very much for your kind comments. Um, uh, but yeah, um, if not kooky, it's just, now let's not do this, Brian. Let me give you two examples. You know, I've published a, a number of books. I've, I've published uh, eight books now, and I've had relations with South African publishers going back years. When I sat down last year to write my book on COVID-19, because I just felt intellectually challenged by what was the nonsense that was being presented. Those publishers, some of them good friends, just said, Brian, let's, let's give it five years, then we'll come back. You know, we just, it's, well, no, let's not touch it now. That was the first thing. So I self-published and, and put it out through Amazon. Within two days, Amazon came back and said, no, you, 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 uh, you, you breached our protocols. We, we're not going to carry you. We're not selling you. So I had to go through three appeals in which I said, just read the book. It's not anti-vax. You know, I have no objection to anybody getting vaxxed. Not conspiracy theory. In fact, there's a whole chapter, you know, uh, dispelling conspiracies. It's based on on facts that are in, in the public domain. It's based upon research of 800 pages of documentation in terms of advisories and guidances by the public health authorities. And it's based on looking at 120 research projects, all of it referenced. So how can you ban it? Three appeals later, they said, oh, oh, yeah, okay. So I'm now selling through Amazon. Now, at what point in the past would that have ever happened? Uh, and, and it was at that point I realized the severity uh, of, of, the, of the problem that we're facing now in terms of mainstream media in actually keeping the channels open. This is why I think Biz News is, is fantastic. Alec, I think you're doing a great job in allowing the debate. And you allow both sides of the debate. Shoo, those guys are hectic when they get going, both pro and, and anti, but that's what it's about. There's a certain organization that won't even carry comments to its COVID-19 um, articles because it said that might be in breach of, 
of, of the legislation. This is an organization that holds itself out to be the slayer of dragons. You know, and when I propose articles to them, it's, which I don't do anymore, it doesn't even get past first base. And those articles the same me. I've not changed. I never had any interest in, in epidemiological stuff. I never had any interest in anti-vax groups. I might have even regarded them as a bit kooky. Yet, I just felt this was something that had to be brought to public attention. And so the disillusionment has been about the way that we can kind of surrender 300 years of enlightenment and go back into a new medieval, which is what I've mentioned. A world which is governed by emotion, superstition, um, shamans and, uh, and soothsayers, um, and, and a government that will use the most extraordinary abuses of human rights, not one government, but many, a most extraordinary abuse of human rights on the basis of a very, very imperfect science, which is unraveling at every point. Um, at some point, obviously, when we get to the second anniversary of the outbreak of the, of the uh, coronavirus and the lockdown, I will do a two-year retrospective. And I'm very sure that what I wrote last year will be completely vindicated, as much of it already is in terms of numbers, statistics, and so on. Already public health authorities in Britain, for example, are rolling back their statistics. Oops, sorry, 23% of the guys we said were admitted to hospital with COVID-19 actually didn't have it. So, so the numbers are already unraveling. The World Health Organization dashboard's got a massive disclaimer. You know, guys, there's some numbers here, but you know, we're not too sure about them, and we rely on the underlying agencies to provide them. So here they are. Yeah, you take your pick. Um, it's all it's all unraveling. Was there anything in your book that you would, with hindsight, have written differently? No, I, my analysis of the way that the reporting um, and identification of uh, the virus, both in terms of infections and fatalities stands completely, in my view, completely vindicated. Well, it can hardly be challenged because it's out of the documentation of the agencies themselves. I didn't make it up. I just reported what they said. Um, and so that stands. Uh, retrospectively, I think um, I, I didn't have the opportunity to get more deeply into excess deaths because that also was a, hey, let's just hoy anything and we want, you know, we'll just put it in there and it'll all look good. But if I did a lot of deconstruction of that in some of the subsequent articles I've written, um, which challenges exactly the basis on which excess uh, numbers were reached at. Still come to the conclusion we were dealing with a severe epidemic outbreak. Let's not forget that. I'm not dismissing that. But the numbers were wrong, and that stands. I think I would have put more effort into looking at excess, and I certainly would have looked more closely at the testing tools, RT-PCR, which, as you know, is going to be dumped by, this, by the Centers for Disease Control on January the 1st next year um, to get, guess what, to get uh, a testing kit that can actually tell the difference between uh, COVID-19 and ordinary coronaviruses. So I think I would have looked more intensely at that, but I didn't have that opportunity. I didn't have that insight, and I didn't have the information which is now being presented to the International Court of Justice in the class actions which are being brought against the manufacturers of RT-PCR and the WHO. But um, I, I think what's going to happen, if we're talking about where the argument's going to go, is going to shift increasingly into the courts in jurisdictions around the world. And there, I think, at least let us hope we can get a proper testing of, of, of positions. 
I'd be delighted to be proved wrong. Um, but I'd be even more interested to see the guys who've, who've presented us with such infallible information at such catastrophic cost to us. I'd like to see them also answering the questions in those courts. Brian, just to close off with going back to uh, Omicron or Omicron, um, how long, given what's happened with the other viruses through history, you, you did mention a two-year uh, window that the, the viruses usually last for. How long do we then still have before the world can return to normality and say this COVID-19 is something that we can coexist with? It's it's extremely hard to say because we we, we you know we, we've been directed here by a political uh, narrative which is being fed by a vested scientific viewpoint. We know that um, viruses, when I say they last two years, they have impact for two years and then they kind of just disappear off. Um, they reassortant viruses. SARS-CoV two is going to pop up as an element of viruses for for years. The question is. To what extent do we become so scared and serious about it that we lock the world up? And that is entirely a political decision. And that will be judged by the extent to which people who think the same way as perhaps I do and the millions of others who do, who now respond to the political leadership which has put them through this, which now demands a greater rationality from them or at least an explanation of why they did it. You know, one of the points that we should remember, the swine flu, which came 2009, 2010, came also with the same kind of hype and the same people who were driving that hype in the CDC and World Health Organization, same guys driving it now. There, um, the suggestion was we were all going to die. Why? Swine flu is a reassortant virus, four different variants, one of which was SARS-CoV-1. And SARS-CoV-1 was a terrifying killer. It kills so quickly People died before they can actually propagate it. So, of course, there was a panic. But very quickly, it was discovered that there was no pathogenic intensity in, in swine flu that would justify massive panic, although attempts were, were made to, to try and engender it. So SARS-CoV-2, which creates COVID-19, will be around for a long time. But its impact will be less and less and eventually no more. And I believe we've reached that point with Omicron, no more than an ordinary coronavirus outbreak, no more than a flu. And, and these things which are, which are now posited as vaccines, which of course they're not, a vaccine prevents and stops an illness. You get a vaccine for smallpox and for polio. You cannot get a vaccine for uh, a coronavirus. They mutate too quickly. If you could, we would have killed the common cold and flu long time ago. All you've got here is an antidote. And those antidotes, we can keep taking them, but they are going to transmogrify themselves essentially into the annual anti-flu jab. Much more expensive, different name, and we got to see how long they're going to be compulsory. Do I have to get an anti-flu jab to get on a plane to go and see my children in Australia in 10 years' time? Is that the insanity we are going to, to keep going? Is our, our fear politics of such a nature in the world that we will be demanding that of people. We don't know because we have departed so far from rationality in this moment of this medieval moment. It's hard to know where the rational political leadership is going to come back and say, guys, 
sorry, yeah, we accept you must do stuff about severe outbreaks. We will do stuff for that. We will care for the vulnerable, but we won't destroy our societies. Where's that leadership going to come from? I can't answer that.